Well, good morning again. Thank you. (laughs) For those of you who might not know me, I'm Gordon Opp. My wife is Debbie, and we've been part of uh, Faith Bible Church now for almost 20 years. We have three grown children and five grandkids, and we consider ourselves to be extremely blessed, and we are thankful people. Now, Brad has been taking us through some of the Messianic Psalms. The book of Psalms is unbelievably unique because it gives us actual inspired words to pray back to God. So many of the Psalms are prayers. We can use those exact words from Scripture to express our praise to God and our thankfulness for how he's blessed us. We can also use God's words to communicate our pain to the Lord through the Psalms through the Psalms that are a lament, like the one that we're going to look at this morning. A lament is a passionate expression of grief, sorrow, pain, and confusion. Now, Psalms is the only book in the Bible written to God. The Psalms gives opportunity for us to slow down, to turn our attention to God, and to communicate with Him in the good times and in the bad. The Psalms are for ordinary Christians living ordinary lives like you and me. Chad Bird is a theologian, and he says, the Psalms are verbal tears for the suffering, a steady hand for the wavering, and a beating heart to the dying. My wife and our two grown daughters and my sister and her husband had the privilege of being with my mother when she passed on into glory to meet Jesus about three years ago. We were reading one of her favorite psalms, Psalm 91, to her. It was one of the ones that she really liked. She was not responsive anymore, but she was breathing normally. The final few verses of Psalm 91 are actually God's words as he's speaking them to the psalmist. He says, Because he has loved me, and in this case it would be she, therefore I will deliver her. I will set her securely on high because she has known my name. She will call upon me and I will answer her. I will be with her in trouble. I will rescue her. I will honor her. With a long life, I will satisfy her and let her behold my salvation. As Maria spoke the very last word of Psalm 91, the word salvation, my 92-year-old mother met Jesus face to face, right at that moment. God not only numbers our days, he numbers our moments. This morning, we're going to take a look at Psalm 102. It is a messianic psalm, but it's also a psalm of lament. Most likely, it's describing Zion, Jerusalem, in a state of ruin after the Babylonians conquered it, and after they destroyed the city and the temple. Now, most of us have not lived through the ravishes of war. Nevertheless, we know what suffering, some of us know what suffering is like. So we can can really relate to the psalmist's lament. Now, the author is not named, but he is described in the heading as an afflicted person who has lost his strength. He's overwhelmed, and so he pours out his complaint to God. The psalm is made up of very two distinctive parts. You've got the first 11 verses is his lament. 
It's the psalmist's misery, a passionate expression of grief, sorrow, pain, and confusion. This biblical lament is actually a complaint prayer to God. He was able to be honest with God and tell him, my life is unbearable. The second part, verses 12 to 28, is a dramatic shift, and it's a praise to God about God's restoration. He's praising God, and it provides a clear, praising God provides a clear and unhindered access to God. Psalm 100 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with prayer, with praise. When we have a thankful heart and we praise the Lord, it's an invitation to be intimate with him. So the second half of the psalm gave the psalmist perspective and hope. He turns his eyes off his desperate situation and onto Jesus. Hence the song, thank you, Troy, for picking out the songs for us, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Also, I guess when they ask you to preach, you can have something to do with the hymns. And Come Thou Fount is my favorite hymn, and uh, I appreciate us having sung that this morning. Now, let's turn to Psalm 102 and listen to it as I read the two parts. First his lament, and then his praise. And do notice the heading above the psalm. It says, a prayer of an afflicted man for mercy on himself and on Zion. Especially when he is faint or overwhelmed, he pours out his complaint before the Lord. Psalm 102 from the New American Standard. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to thee. Do not hide thy face from me in the day of my distress. Incline thine ear to me. In the day when I call, answer me quickly. For my days have been consumed in smoke, and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican of the wilderness. I've become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of thine indignation and thy wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a lengthened shadow, and I wither away like grass." Now, the extreme contrast, he starts praising the Lord. But thou, O Lord, dost abide forever, and thy name to all generations. Thou wilt arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Surely thy servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth thy glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death, that men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the peoples are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. 
He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. The years are throughout, thy years are throughout all generations. Of old thou didst found the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Even they will perish, but thou dost endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing that will change them, and they will be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. Thy children, the children of thy servants, will continue, and their descendants will be established before thee. Let's just have a brief word of prayer here. Oh, Father, how we thank you for the marvelous book of Psalms. May they, those books, those chapters, those inspired words become dear to each one of us during our times of goodness, of thanksgiving and blessing, and during our times of grieving. Amen. Okay, now let's look at it just a little bit uh, closer. Verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer. He is begging God to hear, because if God hears, surely he has to respond. Don't hide your face from me, God. You know, the affliction is bad enough, but it's much worse if it seems that God doesn't see, he doesn't hear, and he doesn't care about it. But when one believes that God's favor and his face are evident in the midst of affliction, then it can be endured. But if he hides his face, how can there be any refuge? Verses 3 through 7, the afflicted one describes his agony, smoke. He considers his life just to be a vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow. His bones, he aches everywhere. You know, we're made up of a skeleton, and we, when we are ravished with pain, we feel it in every bone and joint of our body. His heart aches. He's depressed. He has no appetite. He feels like a lost, worthless sparrow. He can't sleep. He is afflicted with restlessness and gloominess, and he feels like he has no value at all. Verses 8 and 9. Sorrow came from more than just his poor health. His enemies were mocking and cursing him. Some of you who are as old as I am remember sticks and stones can't, can't hurt me, or whatever, can't hurt me. I can't even remember it. I'm so old. <laughs> anyway, sometimes we think that words don't hurt us but they do. Sometimes they are the most bitter. You can talk to women who are in an abusive relationship. Sometimes they say, I wish he'd just hit me because that heals. The words don't. He talks about ashes. Ashes is a constant symbol of mourning, day and night. Ashes to this guy was as familiar as his food and drink. Now, I want you to really pay attention to verses 10 and 11. He says, why am I suffering? And listen to what it says. Because of your indignation and wrath, God. Now, Israel rebelled. Sometimes we suffer for no apparent reason, like Job. Sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. Look at that second part of verse 10. It says, thou hast lifted me up and casted, cast me away. When I was looking at some sermons that Spurgeon wrote, he said, it's like, the words are like a wrestler picking up his opponent and throwing him down and turning his back on him. That is the way the psalmist felt God was looking at his situation. Either way, 
whether we are suffering because of our own sin or because of some other purpose that God has, God allows it or orchestrates it for his glorious purposes that we most likely will never fully understand. Remember in the Gospels, the man that was born blind, and they asked him, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he's born blind? Do you remember what the answer was? Neither he nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You know, there's a lot of uh, psalms that are laments, but there's also a whole book that's a lament, and that's the book of Lamentations, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. It's just to the right in your Bible. If you'd like to turn there, we're just going to read a couple verses. Lamentations chapter 3, starting with verse 31. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. I love that, according to his abundant loving kindness. You'll see that often in the Psalms. For he does not afflict willingly or from the heart or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land. To deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High or to defraud a man in his lawsuit, of these things the Lord does not approve. However, the word however isn't in there, but it's a change here. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? We could spend a whole lot more time talking about that, but I'm going to move on in my notes here. 2 Corinthians 12 is about Paul's thorn in the flesh. It says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he just went through this fabulous vision and for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. So to keep him from pride, there was given, given to me by the Lord a thorn in the flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. The overwhelming affliction our psalmist was experiencing did not go away. The problem was not resolved. Neither was Paul's thorn in the flesh removed. God's grace was and remains sufficient for them and for us. God's power is perfected in weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. He goes on, the psalmist, I wither away like grass, I'm overwhelmed by divine rejection. The psalmist felt that his life was cast away and had little meaning. He was rejected and dejected. This lament in Psalm 102 is very much like the book of Job. In fact, you'll see some of the exact phrases there. In the first part of Job, uh, the Lord says to Satan, Satan didn't bring up Job, the Lord brought up Job. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. Satan had to get God's permission to afflict Job. Now, after the affliction started, Job's wife says, curse God and die. Job's response was, shall we indeed accept good from God 
and not accept adversity. Later, as things got worse, Job cursed the day he was born, and he starts asking, why? Why did I not die at birth? Why is light given to him who suffers? He eventually comes to the place where he can say, though God slay me, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Then, of course, we all know about Job's friends. But Job starts to demand from God a hearing. Give me a hearing. I need to plead my case that I am not guilty. He goes through all this. All the, you need to read it. It's a really good study. I'm sure many of us have. But God answers him. He answers him with 80-some questions. A few of them are like this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who enclosed the sea with doors? Have you ever in your life commanded the sun to rise in the morning? Can you send forth lightning? Can you give understanding to the mind? Job comes to his senses, and towards the end of the book, he answers. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I ask thee, and do thou instruct me. I have heard thee by the hearing of my ear, but now I see thee with my eyes. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes." I love C.S. Lewis, the British literary scholar and lay theologian. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And while we're mentioning C.S. Lewis, remember his wife, Joy? She was an American citizen living in the States with her two boys, and she was in an abusive, alcoholic marriage. She read something that Lewis had written, and she began to correspond with him. Eventually, he paid for her to come to England with her two boys. Her divorce was finalized, and she and Lewis became very close friends. She made a government request to extend her visa and it was denied. So C.S. Lewis married her just so she could stay in England. Less than a year later, she was diagnosed with cancer and given only a few weeks to live. Their marriage had been, a simple, had been simply a civil arrangement, a marriage not recognized by the church, and they had not lived together. However, her dying wish was to be married in the church because she had learned to love Lewis so much. Lewis found an Anglican priest who could not refuse Joy's dying request. So they got married in the church. She miraculously recovered, and they enjoyed the next three years together until she died in late 1960. Lewis was devastated. He said, quote, Go to him, our Lord, when, you need, when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? 
you find a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. Okay, that's the lament part of Psalm 102. Now let's look at the praise and the restoration. If I was to title this, this message, I'd say, but you, Lord, but you, O Lord. The psalmist turns from self to God. It's a sharp contrast. Man shall suffer and wither away, but you, O Lord, will endure forever. The covenant God of Israel, the God revealed physically in Christ, he shall endure forever. The psalmist starts to reject all self-reliance and begins trust and true reliance upon God. The first part is filled with I, me, my, poor me. And the last part is, but you, O Lord, the focus is no longer on self, but on God. Your remembrance, the remembrance of your name, will endure to all generations. Verses 13 and 14, favor to come to Jerusalem. The set time, God's appointed time, and it could be after the 70 years captivity, the psalmist now says now, or it could be the second coming of Christ. Both are applicable. The stones and dust of destroyed Zion are prized by God and his servants. Isn't that interesting? It's our nature to reject things that are broken and torn down or worn out. However, old ruins of abandoned castles, sunken ships like the Titanic, there's an awe about something old that has been very significant. But you don't want to live in a ruin. You don't take pleasure in a ruin. You like something built up and proper, something restored. But God's servants have a love for every stone and even the dust of the destroyed beloved city of Jerusalem. Every stone of Jerusalem destroyed is significant in God's sight. My wife and I are privileged to do some traveling with our RV. We were up in Wyoming last month in a forested mountain area with a rushing stream right about 50 feet behind our, our camper. One of the hiking trails was actually one of the first old highways running right along the river. If we hadn't been told that the trail was once a highway, I never would have believed it. However, once in a while, you could see the remnants of the old asphalt. It was a four-mile hike to the remnants of an old bridge that crossed the river and back to our campsite. I couldn't help but daydream about all the travelers in their old Model A's, chugging along and stopping to rest on the very trail I was walking on. I loved it. The small pieces of the old roadway became very significant and interesting to me. In my mind, I went back in time. I love thinking about going back in time. And envisioned the people who had traveled that road before me. And how awesome it could be if it could instantly be rebuilt and put back to its former glory. God will never leave Jerusalem in ruin, nor will he leave us in ruin. Each one of us is a stone in God's building, the church. 1 Peter 2 says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for the holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, you might be a broken stone, or even a ruined one that's been ground to dust. 
but you are precious to God and to the people of God. Charles Spurgeon, famous 19th century English Baptist preacher, he said, the poorest church member, the most grievous backslider, the most ignorant convert should be precious in our sight because they form a part of the new Jerusalem. Verses 15 through 17, the restoration of Jerusalem is described. New heavens and earth. And that's only the beginning of the larger work God does for the nations. All kings will honor his name. He shall appear in his glory. He will reveal himself, his mercy. Don't you love that word, mercy? We deserve the penalty, but he doesn't give it to us. His grace, his blessing. The restoration of Jerusalem is a foretaste of his goodness to all the earth when he shall regard the prayer of the destitute. Verse 18 to 22, God considers and plans for people yet to be created. That's an interesting revelation, isn't it? I love history. I love to think back. I've got correspondence and stuff from some of my relatives, and you find out that they were believers, and I get all excited about that. But I don't think much about people yet to be created. Maybe we should think about those folks. God bends down from heaven to see. Now, haven't we all stretched up or sideways or to the back or something in order to see something significant? Well, our Father, who art in heaven, stoops down to see us in our affliction. Now, perhaps your affliction is repulsive. Perhaps the church, some of God's people, have classified your troubles as much worse than theirs. And maybe you've been betrayed. I want you to listen to two verses in the Psalms. Psalm 55, 12 to 13. It's about betrayal. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together. You see how the Psalms almost Anything in your life, you can find a prayer to God and someone else that has experienced what you're going through. And then, the fact that your affliction may be repulsive to others, I have to look at Psalm 22, 24. Love this one. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him for help, he heard. Our Lord will never be repulsed by you or your affliction. If you're a believer, you belong to him. He will never betray you. He bends down to hear your groaning and to set you free. We have to think of Stephen, the first martyr in Acts 7. He was preaching and it, uh, to the religious leaders and letting them know that they were not part of God's kingdom. They were hypocrites. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. They take him out to stone him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. As far as I can tell, this is the only time in Scripture 
where it says Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen was gazing intently into heaven and seeing Jesus stooping down to see his, his murder and to welcome him into heaven. Jesus stoops down and sees our affliction and at the appointed time will rescue us and welcome us into his arms. You know, while we're thinking about those religious leaders, I can't help but look at what Jesus says about them in Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, and these are terrible words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know, those people thought they knew God. And it wasn't, you know, what they thought about how they knew God was actually irrelevant. He did not know them. You know, I used to pray for my loved ones that they would know God better. And I think that's a good thing to pray. However, now my prayer for my loved ones is that they would know that God knows them completely inside and out. Just read another psalm, Psalm 139. God knows each one of us perfectly in ways that we can't even possibly know ourselves. So my prayer is that my loved ones would know that God knows everything about them and that they would respond to that. What changed me was Galatians 4.9, which changed the way I pray. It says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by him. Wow, that just hit me. It's a whole lot more important that God knows us because that's the beginning point. And the Pharisees, he didn't know them. Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, knew Stephen. If you have put your faith in Christ's work on the cross for your salvation, the Holy Spirit has come to indwell you forever, and Jesus knows you. Verse 25 to 27, this is clearly the messianic part of the psalm. The psalmist prays to the one and only God of the chosen people. He prays to the great I am. I love that. His prayer, though, is repeated in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, where the author is presenting Jesus Christ as better than anything else. He starts by comparing him to the angels. In Hebrews, the passage is God the Father attributing these very words from Psalm 102 to God the Son, Jesus. So our psalm this morning, besides being a lament and a praise, it's pointing us directly to Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 1, verses 10, 12. We've already read it out of Psalm 102. And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest, and they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle, thou wilt roll them up. And as a garment, they will also be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. This powerfully demonstrates the authority of Jesus Christ. Also shows us <clears throat> that God is separate from his creation. The old doctrine, the creator slash creation distinction, which we're actually going to talk about in Sunday school next. In theory the entire universe could pass away and God would be unaffected. God would still exist as he is. Now, God has the power of the universe to change it like a garment. He can change the heavens as he pleases. This anonymous, afflicted psalmist prayed these words to God 
and God the Father describes God the Son with the exact same words. Now the last verse of Psalm 102, he has great confidence. Thy servants will continue. The affliction remained. He doesn't claim hope for this present trouble. Rather, he is utterly confident of God's goodness and ultimate victory for his people. This psalm is a remarkable declaration of trust in God's promise to make all things right, if not in the present day, then in the days to come. The psalmist laments. He passionately expresses his grief, sorrow, pain, and confusion to God. Then he looks outside of himself to Judah, and then to the whole world, and then to the future generation folks. He got perspective. Psalm 102 points us to Jesus. Take your eyes off your affliction and gaze intently into the heavens, seeing Jesus, your Savior, standing at the right hand of God, having everything in his control and knowing that he will make everything right at its appointed time. Now, how do we apply this? Some of what I'm going to say here came from a sermon I heard by Gavin Ortland when he preached on a sermon on Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is really interesting. It is a lament for sure, but unlike our Psalm 102, there is no resolution. It's as if the psalm ended at verse 11 without ever praising God. It's also a song. Interesting. Uh, I am going to read just a couple things from Psalm 88. And if you look at the caption above it, it says, A psalm, a song of the sons of Korah for the choir director. Okay, so this, was, this Psalm 88 was written to be sung as part of worship. Wow, a worship song that is a passionate expression of grief, sorrow, pain, and confusion without any resolution. Maybe if we sang about affliction, it might help us get through some of those hard times. I'm going to read just a couple of verses. Psalm 88. O Lord, the God of my salvation, this is a believer, I have cried out by day, and in the night before thee, let my prayer come before thee. Incline thine ear to my cry. Sounds just like Psalm 102, doesn't it? For my soul has had enough troubles, and my life has drawn near to death. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength. Verse 9, my eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon thee every day, O Lord. I've spread out my hands to thee. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, I have cried out to thee for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before thee. O Lord, why dost thou reject my soul? Why dost thou hide thy face from me? That's holy boldness. I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. And the last verse, thou hast removed lover and friend from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. The point of Psalm 88 is that the believer continues to cry out even though he seemingly gets no answer. I think there are four ways that Psalm 102, Psalm 88, Job, Lamentations, Paul's thorn in the flesh, there's four, at least four ways that thinking about these overwhelming afflictions can help us. The first one, expect to grieve. We may suffer because of our sin or simply for some of 
other God's divine purposes. Now, maybe grief hasn't hit you hard yet, but take heed to these laments in Scripture so that you can be prepared if God trusts you with some affliction. Number two, allow others to grieve. Job's friends told him, fess up, you must have done something wrong. Don't be Job's friends. Just be there for others as you let them grieve. When I went up to college out in Southern California and went to Chuck Swindoll's church, during that time, somebody in his congregation had a four- or five-year-old boy that drowned in the swimming pool in the backyard. I can still remember Chuck t talking about this. He says, I went over there, and I didn't give them a single verse. I came in, and I hugged them, and I was just with them. That's what you do by letting other people grieve. Number three, interpret your suffering. There's a big difference between being forsaken and feeling forsaken. We are the Lord's beloved, and his ways are so far different than ours. But we must always remember the truth, no matter what's happening, no matter if he doesn't answer us, he will never forsake his own, and everything is going to work out, and he is stooping down. The last one, fourth, keep crying out to God, like the psalmist in Psalm 88 did. Keep pounding on the door like C.S. Lewis did. Humble yourself like Job did. Keep your eyes on Jesus like Stephen did. Accept God's answer, no, if you have a thorn in the flesh, that the Lord wants you just to be strong in your weakness. I have an analogy that I wasn't sure if I was going to say or not, but we're just going to go for it. It's because it's about a dog. Before my mom died, she had this cute little dog, King Charles Cavalier. Her name was Annie. And we promised my mom that if the dog outlived her, we would take the dog. We had that dog for about two years. It was the sweetest little animal you ever saw. One weekend, she got unbelievably ill. We took her to the vet on Monday morning, but it was too late. And so he said, really nothing we can do. So she's on the table, and my wife and I are there, and I've got my hands on her, and she trusted me. And so I just had her look in my eyes, just look in my eyes, until she was gone. Now, the love that I had for that little dog is nothing compared to the love that God has for you, that Jesus has for his own as you're going through your affliction. Based on the whole Bible, not just what we've talked about today, I, all, the, all the teaching that we can find in the Bible, and praise the Lord for this church that cares about what the Bible says, I believe Jesus would say to you, when you express passionately to him your grief, sorrow, pain, and confusion. Don't bypass that step. Pray your grief, sorrow, pain, and confusion to him. Communicate it to him. And this is what I think he will say. I love you. I stoop down to see you. I understand you like no one else does. I hear your every prayer. I'm right beside you. I will guide you. It won't last forever. You will be with me in my arms. 
don't give up. Now, we're going to have a couple songs after this, but I would like you to stand right now for what I consider my benediction. Romans 1, 18 and 19. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Amen.